The issue is when you have an institution that is religious and that is inherently connected to the state. There was a slogan, you know, from like what, 20, 15 years ago, Medinat Halakha, Halakha Medina, which is a play on words, which basically means when you have a Medinat Halakha, a theocracy, basically where the state is coercing religion, Halakha Medina, then there goes the state, meaning that fundamentally having a theocracy is at odds with the democratic state. Also to flip that, we've kind of reworded that slogan to also say Medinat Halakha, Halakha Halakha, that when you have a theocratic state, it also corrupts Halakha itself. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Over the past 30-plus weeks in Israel, there's been lots of talk about the pros and cons of judicial reform and about the ways that it should and should not be done. And while that issue has taken center stage, other important legislation has also been proposed or passed, which has been largely ignored. And yet many of these changes will have far-reaching effects on the nature of religion in Israel and need to be acknowledged. Now, I'm putting my cards on the table here. I am not an impartial observer. As I've mentioned repeatedly on this podcast, I think that the politicization of religion in Israel may be the most dangerous challenge to Torah Judaism in the world today. And while I've mentioned Rav Soloveitchik's position before, it's worthwhile quoting him again. And the following comes from page 140 and onward of The Rav Thinking Aloud by David Holzer and is a verbatim quote. There is another prerequisite, and as far as this prerequisite... I am at loggerheads with the entire Orthodox community, but I can't help it. You can ask me many questions, but I can't help it. The sacrificial action must be a free action. It depends upon the freedom of the sacrificial action. In order to be significant, the withdrawal must extend from the free decision of the individual either to act or to retreat, to conquer or to experience defeat, and he chose the latter of them. No undue influence and no coercive circumstances must interfere with the behavior of the person. Sacrifice is endowed with meaning as long as the act of offering was experienced in liberty and the unrestricted opportunity of deciding against the deed. If one is constrained by legislation which is provided by effective sanctions, by public opinion, by ulterior considerations to conform to certain codes of morality or ethical standards, then the sublime sacrificial action is desecrated, vulgarized. The halo which Yahadus weaves about sacrificial action is born in freedom. Whenever there is a factor of force in all its manifestations, not only police force, the great dialectical experience of sacrifice is rendered lame. Only the individual who is capable of disobedience, who is free to rebel, to resist, to protest, to question, to invalidate every standard and dogma, Only this individual is able to surrender his admirable power of standing against everything and everybody, including God, and accept, instead of triumph, defeat. I am the one who opposes fully, I have said this at conventions, the whole business of legislating religion in Eretz Yisrael. To me, it is ridiculous. It will obtain the reverse effect. You cannot make a Jew pious or observant by having a police force. You can ask many questions, I know, many questions. It is not here the time in general to discuss halachic sanctions. Halacha knows of sanctions, and I have a theory about it, but it is not my job to discuss it now. But to me, Mizrahi is committing the most terrible historical mistake. We should instead devote all our energies to an educational campaign to display the beauty of Yahadus, to show the people that we have a comprehensive philosophy and make them come, out of their free will, to the fold. Legislating through a parliament, I cannot see it it will never be as effective as an attempt to educate people. I cannot see a rabbanut, which is a part of government. A few months ago, they approached me about the chief rabbinate, and I said, no, gentlemen, I cannot become a part of the government. A rabbi is sometimes opposed to government. If the rabbi's authority is constituted by legislation, the whole rabbinic dignity is gone. Again, these are the words of Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik Zetzal. Some of the most recent proposed legislation further empowers the government-sponsored rabbinate, both at the national and local levels, even as it centralizes rabbinic power, and it is power, much more than it has been until now. 
and this is only a piece of a much bigger problem. Rachel Stommel of the Center for Women's Justice has wide-ranging knowledge of the rabbinate and the consequences of state-sponsored rabbinic power, and it was an honor to speak with her today. We'll get to that conversation in just a moment. First, subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Audible, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And remember to rate and review. Nowadays, there is no better way to promote your company, your organization, your brand, or yourself than to have a podcast. As long as that podcast sounds great and is expertly produced, that's exactly what we do at JCH Podcasts. So go to jchpodcast.com or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. You will be thrilled with the results. Finally, I have been gratified and honored by the positive feedback I've received for this podcast, both publicly and privately, including when people disagree with either me or my guest. Anytime someone takes the time to reach out, I appreciate it, and I'm very flattered. As you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to produce every episode of The Orthodox Conundrum, from the preparation, to the recording, to the post-production. There's so much more that I want to accomplish through this podcast, including live events and more. I value the community that we've created together, and I invite you to support The Orthodox Conundrum through our Patreon site. Go to patreon.com slash jewishcoffeehouse, that's patreon.com slash jewishcoffeehouse, and help us to create a positive, God-centered, halachic, intellectually honest, self-aware, accountable, and welcoming Orthodox Judaism. Rachel Stommel believes in the power of mobilizing communities to spark social change. She is the Director of English Communications at the Center for Women's Justice, an Israeli legal advocacy organization that defends women's rights whenever they are compromised by the state in the name of religion. She is CWJ's English social media expert, in-house translator, graphic artist, campaign manager, and halachic prenup consultant to couples. She lives in Yerushalayim with her husband and children. Rachel Stommel, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thanks for having me. We're going to be speaking about some new legislation that's going through the Knesset, and it may have some very far-reaching effects on the nature of religion in the state of Israel. The chief rabbinate is controversial, obviously, because it's supposed to be the ultimate religious arbiter in the state, and hopefully, if you're a religious Jew, a beacon of goodness and Torah and light. A lot of people don't necessarily think that's the case. So I'd like to open up, Rachel, by talking about the role of the chief rabbinate as it now stands. Many people, as I just mentioned, are dissatisfied with the nature of what it is, including, I believe, the organization that you work for, the Center for Women's Justice. Could you start off explaining what aspects of the Israeli chief rabbinate you find problematic? So I think there's two things we need to discuss. There is the chief rabbinate as an institution, and there's also the chief rabbinate as it has become today, and the people, the actors inside of it, and their behavior, which has been not so great, according to many people in Israel. Um, so a bit of history, I guess, the chief rabbinate, you would think is a Jewish institution and historically a Jewish invention, and that is not actually the case. Um, the chief rabbinate in Israel was not founded by Jews. It was actually a relic of the Ottoman system. You know, when the, uh, when the Ottomans controlled this area, you know, for 400 years, um, they employed what was called the millet system, which is basically letting each religious group uh, govern themselves in certain aspects. And, you know, and there is a personal status like marriage and divorce and certain, you know, courts, things like that. Um, and that was a kind of like this proto-pluralism, you could even say, which is kind of ironic to see where it's gone today, um, letting everyone kind of have this religious independence to do what their own community saw fit. Um, and in in around the 17th century. So um, there was, you know, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem and the chief rabbi of Constantinople. Um, and that was combined in 1842 to be, you know, one position. And that was pretty much, you know, the chief rabbinate of the Jews. Um, and this, again, was not something that the Jews wanted or created. It was imposed on them by the Ottomans. This was not a organically Jewish idea. Rachel, is that what we now call the Sephardic chief rabbi, the Rishon Litzion? Is yeah, that yeah. that position? So this, this is the Rishon Litzion, the Sephardic chief rabbi. And then in um, 1921, with the British mandate, who were now in control of the area, so they established, um, there's a Ashkenazi chief rabbi and the Sephardic chief rabbi, and they were going to rule all these, you know, basically preserve what the millet system already had established, preserve that under the British mandate, that kept going. Um, and then when the, in uh, 1947, when Ben Gordon was trying to figure out how to 
integrate this religious system with a democratic country, um, then we reached what's known as the status quo arrangement, which is basically um, that we were going to keep and preserve the millet system for religious issues and matters of personal status, while we also are kind of going to shoehorn this into our new country. Um, and that was basically um, an opt-in system. Um, Knesset Israel, which is what it was called, it was this opt-in system where you can basically subject yourself to these religious laws or not. And then in 1953, it became exclusive that this was the only legal avenue that's available for everyone um, for issues of personal status. And that is pretty much where it's been today. So the chief rabbinate, again, it's not an organically Jewish thing. Um, it's something that kind of got shoehorned into our system and now has become what it is today. So the chief rabbinate has been always around since the state's been around and before that. Um, and there were originally there was no term limits for chief rabbinate for chief rabbis. It just was more of uh, I'm not sure how they decided to change uh, hands. Um, I guess it just kind of happened more organically or when someone decided to step down. Um, but there was a lot of infighting in the 80s uh, between the Sephardi and Ashkenazi chief rabbis. And then politicians kind of stepped in and said, OK, we're going to have term limits, 10 years, and try to basically regulate the political aspect of this rabbinic system, which was inherently political from the start. And then Shas was established as a result of that um, to try to regain some of the political aspect that was lost um, in that process. So uh, You're speaking yeah. about the Shas political party. Yes, Shas not only means, uh, you know, the Shas dream, you know, but Shas also referring to a political party that was started by Rabbi Vadi Yosef, uh, um, and that has been a main political force, a very strong political force in Israel and the Sephardi community since then. So the the rabbinate as an institution in Israel is very political, and it often comes at the expense of the religious aspect that it should be upholding and should be, you know, on an ideal level, it should be creating a nice, uh, you know, vibrant Jewish community that can grow and be, uh, you know, be help facilitate religion for people. And that is not what happens today in practice. Okay, Rachel, can you explain that a little bit more? In what ways does it come at the expense of the religious aspect of it? How? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, the I mean, there's the behavior of the individual people who that has not been so great. We have had chief rabbis go to prison. We have had a lot of criminal activity, a lot of really embarrassing things like as a religious person it just it's very embarrassing when these things come out and you're like oh no not another religious person doing bad things but it's not just a religious person it's people who are supposed to be representative of you know judaism um it's it's pretty bad um also the the chief rabbinate in israel has exclusive jurisdiction over marriage and divorce in israel um the chief rabbinate controls conversion it controls kashrut it controls basically all of these religious flashpoints in Israeli politics that have been really corrupted. Pretty much everything the rabbinate has touched has been controversial, has been riddled with just, you know, civil rights violations. It's been really cruel at times, um, really unjust. And what makes it worse is that this injustice is often justified using religion, meaning religion becomes the tool to oppress people. And it's it's really it's, it's like I said, it's very embarrassing and it's it's wrong. You know, it's wrong for a democratic country to coerce this on its citizens. Like I said, like this is not an opt-in system. This is something that everyone, if they want to marry in this country or divorce in this country or convert in a way that will be recognized by the state, you have to follow the dictates of this political body that is the rabbinate. Okay, Rachel, you know that in principle, I certainly agree with what you're saying. I think there are serious problems with the rabbinate. And when you talk about criminal activity, I think back to the last Ashkenazi chief rabbi in particular, Rabbi Metzger, who did spend time in jail. And this wasn't a surprise. Before he was elected chief rabbi, he had already been prohibited from serving as a city rabbi because of bad conduct. And they sort of got around that and voted him for national chief rabbi, which is ridiculous. So this failing is upwards. Failing upwards, right. Who is wise, he who can anticipate the future. I don't think it takes a wise person to anticipate this is going to happen with him. On the other hand, a lot of chief rabbis, even if we don't like what you're mentioning now, violations of civil rights or anything else, I'm going to assume that they mean well. They are trying to preserve Judaism. They're not trying to do something wrong. At least I would assume 
that they're coming from a place of positive motivations, at least sometimes or some of them. Let's let's try to narrow that. So why are they doing this? What are the reasons that because I don't want to go into, oh, they have a personal stake in it. Maybe that's true for some, but I'm sure there are some people who are very good people who are still violating civil rights because we see that's inherent in the rabbinate. In your opinion, Rachel, why is it that people who are fundamentally good are doing things which end up being very bad? So I don't think it's an issue with the people, because like you said, there were a lot of very good people. There are a lot of good rabbis who did really good things, you know, and a lot of like Ruf Cook and even like Ruf Gorin, there's things that that we at the Central Justice use his one of his uh, halakhic postnups, for example. We use that today um, or a version of it that we recommend couples signing. There are a lot of things that are good that individual people have done. The issue is when you have an institution that is religious and that is inherently connected to the state. There was a slogan, you know, from like what, 20, 15 years ago of Medinat Halakha, Halakha Medina, which is a play on words, which basically means when you have a Medinat Halakha, a theocracy, basically where the state is coercing religion. Halakha Medina, then there goes the state, meaning that fundamentally having a theocracy is at odds with the democratic state. Also to flip that, we've kind of reworded that slogan to also say Medinat Halakha, Halakha Halakha, that when you have a theocratic state, it also corrupts Halakha itself. Um, when you try to shoehorn Halakha, which is this, you know, should be this vibrant, fluid thing that many different communities can apply in the way that works for them and that has worked for them since forever. Um, and you try to basically limit Halakha and you limit Judaism into a box that works for political reasons and that works um, tied to state power, um, which also means tied to state violence, you are basically setting yourself up for disaster. So it doesn't matter how nice and how good and how purely motivated the individual actors are in a system that is inherently flawed and inherently at odds with running a democratic country. Okay. Can you give some examples then of we don't have to go through the entire gamut of things that are going wrong, but give some examples of where things have gone wrong, where chief rabbinate decisions, for example, even if well-intentioned, have violated civil rights. Uh, I mean, the biggest one is marriage and divorce, uh, which is less a chief rabbinate decision. That's just how you know the state is structured and how the religious system is structured in the uh, you know greater scheme of the law in Israel. Um, with marriage and divorce, there's no civil marriage and divorce. The only way to marry and divorce is through the state religious institutions. And it's not just for Jews, by the way. You know, the Jews have to marry through the rabbinate, Muslims through, you know, according to Sharia law, Christians according to the types of Christianity that's recognized in Israel, Jews to the Jews course, that's that's for everyone here. Um, and that means that um, those laws, those religious laws that usually are not very progressive when it comes to women's rights. Um, there are a lot of rights that women have gained over the years that were because of civil law, for example, you know, the rights to own property while you're married and all sorts of things that um, we take for granted today, um, which are not inherently in halakha or in Jewish law or in Sharia law. There's basically a lot of women's rights. We, we only have them because of the secular system. Um, and I think a lot of people in their personal lives are fine accepting that halakha will will uh, govern this area of my life and civil law will govern that area of my life. But when there is no civil law governing areas of marriage and divorce, for example, and you're left with only what halakha offers you, women often find themselves trapped. Like the agunam problem in Israel, like we've talked about before, is not just a religious problem in Israel. It is also a civil problem because a woman who can't get a divorce, who doesn't can't get a get from her husband, whether because he's unwilling or unable to give her a get, she is legally married to him in every way. And, you know, she can't collect single parent benefits. She has to file taxes with him. Things that are purely civil matters that are violated and just off limits to women because halakha just doesn't include that in, in its corpus of, of whatever. There's so many things, you know, and also with conversion, there's the, the way that the state has handled it has been really, really awful were asked by the Torah many, many times not to mistreat converts. And it seems that that is, I don't know, that, that's not what's happening in Israel today. 
Um, there's even conversions that were revoked you know, by the state, that conversions that were done by the state that were then revoked by the state, like they don't even follow their own system. And we have a client now even who, going back to divorce, she and her husband came to an agreement together. They were going to get divorced. They did everything in the family courts. Everything was done. They arrived at the Bay Dean just to do the get ceremony itself, uncontested. They were both willing to do it. Um, and the Bay Dean said, we don't want to let you have a divorce unless you undergo a Jewishness investigation. Now, this is a woman who was married through the rabbinate. She was deemed Jewish enough to marry through the rabbinate, but not Jewish enough to divorce through the rabbinate. Now she has kids, which means that if they investigate her, they're also, there's a risk that they will also unconvert, or not, not even convert, she was born Jewish, that they will undo her children as well. So she doesn't want to go through this investigation. It, she's, it's humiliating, it's unnecessary. They'd have no jurisdiction because it's an uncontested divorce. They should just perform the get ceremony and that's it. Um, and Beitin said no. And we said, what about even just doing like a get me safek? You know, let's say you hold, okay, we don't know if she's Jewish or not. Fine. Halakhically, you can still have them do a get just to cover all your bases and be the most halakhically safe. You would think if that was their main motivation, they would be, you know, they'd be very eager to do that to prevent a woman, you know, from possibly creating mumzerim. And like the, you'd think doing a get, ASAP would be their main priority halakhically, and they said no. We went all the way to the Supreme Court, um, and then at the Supreme Court, then the Supreme Court said, um, you know, they were pretty much back into a corner, and they said, okay, okay, we'll arrange a get for her, um, and so the Supreme Court said, great. Meaning the rabbinate, done. not the Supreme Court. The rabbinate finally said, the they, I'm just defining that. Yeah, yeah. At the Supreme Court, the rabbinate uh, agreed, okay, we will give, uh, we will allow him to give her the get, um, and so they closed, the Supreme Court closed the case, because it theory was resolved. And then once the was already, once the case is already closed, um, the rabbinate comes back and says, well, actually, um, we will allow her to do her get if the Supreme Court rules that we from now on have jurisdiction over all cases where we deem there is a doubtful Jewishness. So what they are basically are saying is that we are going to use this woman as a pawn to get the Supreme Court to give us broader jurisdiction over more things, which it's, it's a completely political move again. So like this is something where it's her religious right to divorce is being harmed. Her civil right to be divorced is not existent. Um, and she's also being used in the greater scheme as, as a political pawn. And they're basically they're using religion or the guise of religion to try to increase power for themselves while the little people are just being, you know, given the runaround. That case is very scary, Rachel, but can you just explain where that came from? Meaning most people who go and try and get a get in rabbinic courts, they don't say we're going to check your Jewishness. Where did that come from, particularly given that the rabbinate itself allowed them to get married in the first place? Yeah, so she um, made Aliyah from the former Soviet Union when she was eight. Um, and so usually the uh, the Beitin will regard immigrants, particularly immigrants from the former Soviet Union, um, as kind of like a suspect class of people that even if they have all the papers and they were declared to be Jewish and they've been investigated, they can be reinvestigated at any time. Um, there is no what's called Sofiyut Diyun in Hebrew. There's no um, no finality um, that even if the Beit Din says you are Jewish now, that means nothing two years from now, um, they can change their mind and change their procedure at any time. So um, that often happens to people for, for immigrants, women immigrants specifically, uh, for converts, people that are constantly at risk of being unjewed. Um, and this is this is a known problem in Israel. And also sometimes it's something that when women go into court, they know this is a risk that, you know, should I try to, you know, they have to weigh their right to, or their desire to get divorced and their desire to stay Jewish and say which one, or, and also to keep their kids Jewish because they know any interaction they have, any interface with the system um, poses a risk for them. That's that's scary. And it sounds almost like if I can compare it to the IRS, which unlike other criminal law in the United States, which is innocent until proven guilty, when you're audited, it's kind of guilty until proven innocent. It sounds a bit like that, that they have to prove their Jewishness rather than the bait in proving that they're not Jewish. Yeah. Okay. That obviously is a terrible situation and completely unacceptable. I'm going to play devil's advocate, though. I'm sure there are some people listening who say, yes, of course, violating civil rights is an awful thing. On the other hand, if we're believing Jews, the idea that Israel would allow intermarriage, the idea that Israel would allow women who don't have a get to remarry, thereby creating mamzerim, 
There are all sorts of problems that happen should we push religion aside and allow some sort of civil marriage in Israel. So how would you respond to that as a religious Jew yourself? So I think the solution is to privatize um, the religious system, that everyone who wants to live a Jewish life can do that on their own terms and on the terms that fit best for them, um, like they do all over the world and that Jewish people have been doing since the beginning of having Jewish people. You know, we have always managed to find a way to follow Jewish law if we want to on our own volition and not because the state is is denying rights from us as a way to coerce us to doing it. I think that is definitely not the way to uh, create a vibrant Jewish community and to, and for sure it turns a lot of people away from Judaism. Like the amount of people who are marrying outside the rabbinate is climbing every year because you know people say oh we have to keep this institution because it's what keep us together and this institution is what's pulling us apart the people who are trying to opt out of it in the best way that they can which is often civil disobedience um because you know there's no civil avenue for people to follow halacha in their own way i think also for us you know for me you know coming from the U.S. originally, the idea is so bizarre to me that the state essentially has a monopoly on halacha. The state is the only body that is legally authorized to determine which halacha can be enforced, how to interpret halacha, who is allowed to interpret halacha. It's it's so bizarre to me that this is a decision made by the state and not a decision made by people choosing their own rabbis or choosing their own halakha community. You know, we, we say that you choose your rabbi, you know, and people should be choosing their rabbi because they trust them. The community trusts them. There is some level of authority that this person has that's organic because of who they are and what they've cultivated with their teaching. Um, we don't have that in Israel. The halakha authority is from the top down. It's, a, it's appointed, you know, by the state with people who often have no connection to the community, um, which we're going to talk about. We're going to get into that. Exactly. Even more exacerbated with uh, a law that's that's on the table right now or a bill that hopefully will not become law, but is slated to become law um, if it passes. It's really uh, it causes this this um, disconnect between the people and the religious authority that turns people off of Judaism. I definitely agree with that, and I do think of what Rav Schechter from YU has said, I've heard him say this multiple times, that the idea of a centralized religious authority, the Sanhedrin, for example, in a halachic state, he says that's actually bidiyavad, that the idea that everyone does the same thing is only in certain situations where you're cornered into it and you need an answer for everybody. But as he has said, and I've heard him say this multiple times, variety is the spice of life. It's very good if different communities do different things according to that community's rabbi, and we only have everyone doing the exact same practice if we're cornered into it. Also, variety is the spice of halacha as well. Like when you think of like, sometimes, you know, we, we've even had cases where like a Beijing will say like, like what we had even recently, like a Mamzer case, which I'm not going to go into too much detail about, but basically our Beijing said that we can't, you know, deal with this case, but we know that there's a herkev, a different herkev that we trust that will apply this halakha solution that we don't feel comfortable doing. We're going to send you to them. They will deal with it. And and then and they did. So basically in Jewish law, you can have different authorities who trust each other, even though they have conflicting ideas. And we trust them enough to say like, I personally wouldn't apply this mechanism, but I know that they would and they do it, you know, in a way that I trust and feel safe about. I'm sending you to them and they'll fix it. And that that is how halacha works. You know, it's, it's not necessarily math. I mean, I'm not that I'm not such a, you know, not a mathematician. So maybe someone will say, oh, math is actually very fluid. I don't know. Um, but it's, you know, the, the halakhic system works in a way that allows and encourages fluidity and diversity. And creativity. That's, that's how it can be applied in a living world. Okay. But one final question on this topic before we move forward. I still think that some people would say, yes, Everything you said is true, but when it comes to being a single Jewish people, the fear of having people who are mamzerim and also effectively dividing the Jewish people into two. Some people say they're Jewish, but they're really not. Other people are mamzerim, but they say they're not. Better that at least we have one centralized authority when it comes to these issues of personal status and allow that one authority to determine who is what and what is whom so that we're able to have one people and it won't be a situation where... I'm marrying a Jew, but in reality, I'm actually marrying a non-Jew, or I think I'm marrying somebody who's not a mom's there, and that person really is. Let's at least centralize that one aspect. 
obviously you disagree. Even within Judaism, you know, there is no 100% Jew. There is only Chezkat Yahadut. You know, that is the best that we can do, you know, and also Chezkat Kashrut of Mamzerim. Like that, there, like I said, you know, it's not a math. Like you, if you have a halakhic authority that you trust, um, that is who you trust. And I don't think anyone trusts the state as their halakhic authority. Like if we were trying to figure out the best way to have the most confidence in the way we're following halakha, so um, outsourcing it to the government is not the most efficient way to do it. I think that's probably a, uh, a very true statement. Of course, there's also the irony that those bodies that control the rabbinate are also the bodies that don't themselves follow the rabbinate. They have their own courts and they have their own post game or whatever the else. There's These... no natural constituency. There's nobody in Israel that follows the rabbinate like that isn't coerced to do so. Like the Haredim don't follow the rabbinate. Like, they won't eat in a rabbinate you know, a certified kosher restaurant that because they don't hold by that. Um, they, you know, go to their own din. The people who are chiloni, who don't want to be subject to the rabbinate, end up being subject because they have to by law. But you know, the religious Zionist community has its own interesting ideological connection to the rabbinate, um, which I think is more an idealized thing than, you know, being connected to what happens today. Um, they really have no natural constituency. There's no, no one likes them. <laughs> Okay, let's move forward to the recent legislation that was proposed. I'm going to read a tweet thread, or just the beginning of this tweet thread, that the Center for Women's Justice came out with on August 9th. And this was the beginning of that tweet. A new bill being discussed right now in the Knesset Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee would drastically alter the way state-employed rabbis are elected, increase their numbers by 320%, and limit the halachic opinions that rabbis are allowed to express. Let's begin with explaining what is this legislation? What does this proposed legislation suggest that change in the rabbinate right now? Yeah, so this new bill, um, which has been for, you know, I guess about a month and a half ago, was introduced in the Knesset. Um, and it's been in discussions. You know, the way that we're since you first you put a bill on the Knesset table, and then it goes, you know, the preliminary reading, then it goes to the first reading. So now it's before the first reading, and it's in the committees that will discuss it. Um, to it has to go through three readings, and then the Knesset votes on it. Is that right? Um, yeah, it, it goes Yeah, it goes through a bunch of stages. And um, so right now it's in the stage of being discussed in this committee, um, which is presided over by um, Simcha Rothman. And he's also, by the way, uh, the Tzinut Adetit and Shas are the parties that are behind this bill. And it is, it's been very controversial. Uh, basically, what- Let me just explain. Tzinut Adetit is the now religious Zionist party. It's not the old religious Zionist party. It's the new religious Zionist party. And Shas is the Haredi Svarti party, just yeah. so our listeners know. Yes. So um, basically, the, the law has a few different- parts like you mentioned so first what it would the i think the biggest change is it basically it changes the way that state employed rabbis are appointed or elected um right now the situation is that um about 75 percent of the body that chooses these uh rabbis these state employed rabbis are local representatives um and then the other 25 percent are representatives of from you know from the top down you know from the the religious ministry or from the chief rabbinate. Um, right, so these are local rabbis of local communities. Is that what these are? There's four types of um, of I guess local rabbis. We have the uh, city rabbis. Uh, there's neighborhood rabbis. There are municipal rabbis and there's yeshuv rabbis. These are the different types of what's considered local rabbis. And so all of these types of rabbis um, who are state employed um, are chosen you know, by the, by a body that elects them. Um, and so right now, the majority of this this body that elects the uh, these local rabbis are local representatives. Um, and then the only, you know, the top, the 25% of these, of the body is representatives of the Ministry of Religion. So that means that basically these people are chosen pretty much by their constituents, people who live there and who will be the people who are choosing the people who will be affected by them for the most part. That will be changing if this bill passes. Um, instead, it will change it that in the small communities uh, that only 28% of the uh, representatives electing these people will be local. 42% will be um, chosen by local representative in the, the larger areas, meaning that in all of the areas now, um, the Ministry of Religion will be the ones primarily electing the bodies, the people who are going to be local rabbis. Um, and the body, the makeup of these bodies also in their new iteration will be mostly Shas representatives, meaning that Shas rabbis 
um, and Shas represents will be the ones who are electing nearly all of the new rabbis for all over Israel of state employed rabbis. Let me just stop. I know there's a lot to talk about, but I want to make sure I understand. So the first point you made is that it's sort of being flipped. Instead of 75% local representatives choosing the rabbis, it's now going to be a majority of national representatives and a minority of local representatives choosing them, right? Right, right. And the second thing is that the people choosing are primarily going to be members of the Shas party. How does that work legally? Why is that happening like that? Obviously, it's not enshrined in legislation that this party chooses. That can't be. Because, yeah, the way that the bodies are set up right now, who the people who are staffing the Ministry of Religion and who are appointed there, basically, are and in all the different uh, so in the different uh, councils yes, that are, will be appointing these rabbis, Shas already right now has a majority of representatives there. So if this law comes to pass, then it means that these top-down bodies have more control and have a majority. That also just means by default that Shas will have a majority because that's just who is on these bodies. All right. So that's the first thing, the element of changing changing who votes for these particular rabbis. Yeah. Now, what about the increase to 320% of what it is now in terms of the number of jobs that are giving up? What does that mean? Yeah. So basically, there's a lot of places that either, you know, don't have rabbis because they don't want one or they don't need one or they're too small or whatever. Um, so they're going to be increasing basically tiers of different, uh, more brackets of places that can get rabbis appointed there. Basically, they're creating more places where rabbis can be put um, that don't exist currently by 320%, meaning that there are going to be a lot more rabbis that are serving areas that either don't want one or don't need a rabbi. Um, and also because these rabbis are being appointed, it's not necessarily, um, and like we said, they're not coming organically from the community that are being appointed top down. They don't even have to live in the place where they're being, uh, where they're presiding over theoretically, just completely, you know, creating. Even after uh, they've been elected the rabbi of that yeah, place, they, they don't, don't have to live have there? To, it just, it's completely minuta, completely disconnected from the community. Um, and I also I think I, mean, I don't want to like, you know, assign motivations to people. But I think when you understand it coming from that place, you understand that this is not coming from a place of, oh, let's answer the needs of the people because this is not coming from the people. It's not coming to serve them. But the people, there will be the ones who have to pay their salaries. So it's kind of like a double whammy is that like this person is being imposed on you and you have to pay them whether you like them or not. Like it's Who the pays them? Is it, is it the Knesset, the national government from our tax money? Or the, is it the, the local, local councils? local people need to pay for these rabbis that are being put over them. From local taxes, from Arnona or whatever. I don't, I mean, I don't know which part it comes from, but it comes but from- But it comes from the local tax or yeah. whatever. Okay. Yes. Then let me ask also about the third aspect that was mentioned in that tweet when it says that it's going to limit the halachic opinions that these local rabbis are allowed to express. What does that mean? Yeah, so that is something that- it, it has never been regulated by law. The law has never really touched on this. So this is like kind of a new thing. We don't really know how it will work or how it can be enforced. Because until now, the local rabbis had pretty much autonomy to do what they wanted. Um, and this bill is saying, no, we want to basically centralize not only how we're you know, appointing all these rabbis, but we're also centralizing what they can do with this power that we are giving them. Um, which if we're talking about halacha, it's very weird. Um, so like you can have, you know, they say basically that the rabbis have to be subordinate to whatever the halakhic views of the state are regarding certain things. So I know, like, you know, you had, you know, a few episodes ago, a podcast about going up to the Temple Mount. So the, the official um, position of the state rabbinate of Israel is that Jews are not allowed to go on the Temple Mount. So if you are a state employed rabbi, you can't say that anymore. If someone asks you, can I go to Harabai? You have to say, either no or just not answer them, which is basically tying the hands of halakhic advisors and, you know, people who are supposed to be a post supposed to be able to, you know, authentically give answers and they cannot do that anymore. Going back to Medinat halakha, 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 that this is basically tying the hands of halakha itself. Um, or this also, it will have probably a huge effect on women, like in communities where it's normal for women to read Megillah or where there are partnership minions or where women have whatever roles they can do um, in whatever capacity their community feels comfortable with, that is likely to change. If you have these rabbis that are not part of the community um, and aren't from the community and also have to be um, 
to be subject to whatever the state says, and the state is not necessarily going to be very progressive on a lot of women's issues, that will affect what women are allowed to do. There are obviously numerous things which are problematic here from a halachic perspective and from a Jewish traditional perspective. Let me mention one that occurs to me offhand. It seems to be there's an inherent contradiction over here because if local rabbis are effectively forced to toe the line of the national rabbinate, that makes them really irrelevant. They're just saying what is being said up top, which means that if anything, there should be fewer rabbis, not more. But this new legislation is increasing the number of rabbis who then are just saying what is being said at the highest levels, and therefore their job isn't even necessary. Yeah, basically, the job of a rabbi, not, it's not really a creative job anymore. Um, it be, they basically become just state mouthpieces. They're and not- administrators rather than creative halakhic yeah. consultants or anything like that. Okay, let me ask you about this. This is a difficult question. I want to ask about the motivations behind this, and I'm going to put it in two parts. First of all, let's say from the perspective of those who are advocating this and what they claim their motivations are, what is the reason they say we should do this? And then let me ask you, obviously, it's an opinion, not a fact, but what do you think the real motivations are behind this? I mean, with this law, I mean, Simcha Rothman, I mean, for Shas, I think it's clear, (laughs) you know, what their motivation is, because they... You know, I think uh, former religious minister Matan Kahana, what he said is basically this is basically taking the institution of the rabbinate and cr- making it into a job factory for Shas. It will create. He is no longer the religious minister. He does not approve. He is of no this. longer. Yes. And actually, what he did uh, two years ago, two years ago, uh, one of the big things that he did is that he cracked down on these kind of jobs of that were unnecessary, that were just money-eating things that were in the rabbinate. He went through and he took out a bunch of positions, people who didn't really do anything but were collecting salaries because um, he wanted to rid rid the rabbinate of things like this, of basically avenues of corruption um, that were just built in. Um, and he he worked very hard to do that. He also worked very hard to get you know more women involved in things and all of that now is being rolled back. So you know, for Shas, I think the motivation is very clear. It creates jobs for them. Also, one of the things that we were talking about a couple of days ago um, is in tandem with this new bill being put forward, the current religious minister um, has decided to raise the salaries of people who are employed by the religion ministry, um, some up to 50 percent, that basically they would uh, not only have a huge, huge jump in salary, especially relative to other uh, salary increases across uh, you know state jobs. Um, they would also get a subsidized car of up to 180,000 shekel. Basically, things that are so transparently corrupt and just really embarrassing when you read it. And you're like, oh no, yeah. So the, I think the motivation for them is very blatant. Well, luckily, Rachel, the economy is humming along, so it's great to spend more money because no one knows what to do with that extra cash. Yes, yeah, so we have so much extra money that let's just. Let's just throw it at jobs that we're going to create right now. Um, so that that's one thing. Um, for the Tzinut Hadati, for the Religious Zionism Party, that is also a sponsor of this bill, I have less understanding why it's in their interest in all to do it. And I can guess why I think, but not, that's just my own conjecture. Um, you know, the, a lot of the religious Zionist rabbis are really, this is pretty much the one thing that they're all united about, which is kind of funny. Um, everyone hates this bill everyone, like all of the big religious Zionist rabbis have come out against it saying that not only will it mean that there are, you know, the the religious Zionist rabbis are not going to be appointed anywhere, not going to be elected because there's just no one who will elect them because the makeup of the bodies that are, uh, that are electing the rabbis. Um, But also it'll tie their hands halakhically and no one wants this. Why is it good for them? You know, Rav um, Dov Lior and Rav Yaakov Ariel, uh, Rav Stav, uh, who else? Rav Shmuel Eliyahu. They've all come out against this. Some of whom are actually supporters of the current government and the religious Zionist party. Yes, yes. I think, you know, there, there's this Twitter meme, you know, that going around for a few years that's, uh, you know, I never thought that the leopards would eat my face, said the woman who voted for the leopards eating people's faces party. Like, I think a lot of this is kind of coming back to bite people that, um, a lot of people who inherently and ideological believe that there should be, you know, some measure of theocracy in Israel, um, never thought it would be used to limit them. They thought they would, oh, these are things that would I would use, you know, to help me, you know, express halacha in the way that I want on my people. And now they're saying, oh, wait a minute, 
if you give the state this power, it's it, sometimes it can be used against you. And they're like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> um, so that I think maybe hopefully this will stir some sort of reckoning in those communities that of, of the dangers of, of creating a theocracy. OK, but Rachel, still, I, we're still trying to figure out. And I understand that it's all speculation. Simcha Rothman, who is from the Religious Zionist Party, whose rabbis are telling him don't do this, is one of the primary forces leading this forward. So what do you think he's trying to do? What's the reason that he's pushing something which his own constituents hate? And this is my pure own speculation, um, but I think that he basically needs to keep Shas happy so that he can pass other things that are more important to him. Um, in the the grander scheme of the judicial overhaul, um, this I think is some, you know, Shas, he needs Shas on board uh, to accomplish it. And this is giving them a really big present. And that will guarantee, hopefully, in his eyes, um, that they'll go along with him with the rest of things that he wants to pass, which some of the things might actually hurt you know, Shas's constituents, a lot of things that will, you know, gut social benefits, which is pretty bad for the Haredi community. Um, and I think sometimes they're starting to be like, wait a minute, hold on, how's, how's this going to help us? And so then, you know, in exchange for that, Simcharafen has to keep them happy by giving out other things that maybe his own constituents will be upset about, but I guess not enough to warrant him changing it. Like he's been saying also, like in the last few you know weeks and all these rabbis are coming out against him. And even, you know, I, I tuned in last week when he was having this discussion in the Knesset and people are like, what are you doing? And he says, don't worry, don't worry. I'll take care of it. I'll make sure that I will get some real design as rabbis appointed. I'll make sure behind the scenes I make it work. And like that's, you know, it's the the trust me, which like that's not how a democracy should work. You know, it shouldn't right. be that you have to trust in the in the chesed of, of the elected officials to to secure your basic rights. But um, he's never once come out and said, like, I think this is good because it will help us do this and that. He's just been defending it, saying, don't worry, I'll make sure it's not bad. Like he hasn't, not that I've seen, he has not come forward and explained why he thinks this is actually good for anyone. Can you also explain, though, the third aspect, the aspect of centralized halachic decision-making and limiting the power of local rabbis to make those decisions what is the motivation of those who are advocating this legislation behind that? I understand why the chief rabbinate itself would want to make sure everything's centralized. Why not? People generally in power want more power. And I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about institutions. It's just how it works in human history. But from the perspective of Shas or anybody else advocating this legislation, putting this bill forward, why do they want more centralized religious control such that locals cannot determine halacha? I think it goes hand in hand with the general trend in the rest of the judicial overhaul of basically centralizing authority. We're seeing that with other parts of the government. So I figure, you know, why not here too? No, it's, it's you know, with the rest of the judicial overhaul package, we're seeing all the independent authorities. Like, for example, you know, the independent authority for the advancement of women, that's being dismantled. And instead it will become, though it's a new uh, government minister run uh, authority that will be replacing it, that will be subject to a minister, it won't be independent, you know, they can't critique uh, any decisions of the government from the outside. Like there's that, that is the general trend, you know, of trying to get the courts to have less, um, you know, less say over what the government does and to really centralize all the power in one place. So if it's good for the government in that aspect, why not do the same thing with, with religion? You know, that, that's the general trend of where everything is going. And we see that it's, that having everything centralized is dangerous, you know, not only for democ democracy, but also for religion. I agree with that. Let's go back to something I asked a moment ago. It could be that there's no answer, but has Shas, or you've said the Religious Zionist Party hasn't really done this, but has Shas expressed publicly why they want this? We understand their motivations. It's jobs, it's power, et cetera. But publicly, for public consumption, have they made any claims about why this is important for Am Yisrael? Um, I don't think they have to. <laughs> so I think they, they, you know, are not really beholden to anyone. So they don't have to explain their rationale. They don't need to convince anyone. They're just doing it. So, you know, which is a general problem we see also with the rest of the rabbinate, like we were talking about, when you are not beholden to anyone, when you don't need to make anyone happy, you have no reason to convince anyone what you're doing is good. You have no reason to listen to anyone else. Because why should you, you know, like in the diaspora, for example, if you have a rabbi or, you know, an institution that is not good for the people, the people will just not engage with it. You know, they have to at some level be in touch with their constituents and be, you know, be somewhat engaged and and uh, kashuv. Um, you know, they have to be open to hearing 
what people want. And when you have a top-down system, like what we've built in Israel, then there is really no motivation and no reason and no incentive for anyone at the top to listen to people at the bottom, because why should they? Okay. They detract from their power and not more. Now, I've also heard, and maybe this is the same thing as that third clause of the legislation we talked about in terms of not being able to have independent halakhic decision-making authority, but I heard the part of the legislation includes local rabbis signing some sort of declaration of allegiance to the chief rabbinate council. Is that a separate issue, or is that the same thing as we I mean, mentioned before? It's probably before? the same thing. It's probably the same wow. thing. Yeah. It's, I mean, to me, just the declaration of allegiance sounds, frankly... Very not Jewish. That's not how things work around here. Yeah, basically, that's a very we're creating idea. like the Jewish Pope. You know, that's what we're doing. And that's not how, you know, Judaism never had a Pope. That's not how we work. And, you know, and even we have cautionary tales, you know, in all of Nevi'im and in our history of like what happens when religious leaders take this kind of power and use it. And it's never good. Let's look at an example of that, Rachel. I'm going to talk about a different piece of legislation, which already passed. And this is legislation that took place at the beginning of July when the Knesset passed legislation that pushed off elections for the chief rabbinate. We're not talking about local councils. Now we're talking about the two chief rabbis of the state of Israel. They were supposed to be this July, July 2023. Instead, they're going to be next April, April 2024, which means that the chief rabbis will have a longer term. It's, as you mentioned, a 10-year term now. This particular pair will have 10 and a half years. It also means that the chief rabbinate council, the elections for that have been pushed off from this August to next June, extending its term by about 10 months. Now, officially, Shas, which is, again, the party advancing this legislation, says that the reason is because the 150-member committee that decides on the chief rabbi this way, because there are local municipal elections this year, the people making the decision about the chief rabbis will be the newly elected members of the council rather than the outgoing members of the council. And that's much fairer. You want the people making the decision for the next 10 years to be the people who are currently going to be affected by it in power. However, that said, most people, and this has been reported widely, this is not mere speculation, say that something else is actually going on there. Could you explain, please? Yeah. So um, I don't know if it's even like behind the scenes. It seems like it's in front of the scenes, actually, um, is there's a huge conflict of interest here. Basically, uh, Arya Derry, who we know and love as an upstanding politician and person all around. Um, so his... Um, he and is, the head of Shas, for those who don't yes, know. Yes, the head of Shas. So he's you know behind this law. Um, there, He has a little problem on his hands because... Um, the the two main contenders for the Sephardi chief rabbi are one, his brother, Rabbi Yehuda Derry, um, and the other one is the brother of the current uh, Sephardi chief rabbi, Rav David Yosef. Um, and, and the son of the former chief rabbi. Yes, yes. And also, you know, Rav Yosef family, that is who was established Shas. So he, he is a little bit of a bind here because one end he wants his brother to be the chief rabbi, but also he can't go against the, the uh, you know, Shas Yosef family, because um, that is also, you know, a no-no. So what's his solution here? Basically, he has arranged that he is going to get Rav David Yosef placed as the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And then his brother will have, you know, a straight shot to the chief rabbinate. But that was going to be problematic if he didn't pass this bill, because the elections for the chief rabbinate of Jerusalem would be after the chief rabbinate elections. So he needs to basically switch that around and delay the chief rabbinate elections till after the Jerusalem one so he can get the competition out of the way before the elections happen. And he did it. So he passed this law um, that, you know, people who are in the know say that it was pretty much like a personal law. This is a law passed just for the express purpose of making his brother the chief rabbi. I keep it's pretty unbelievable. This is like embarrassing, but <laughs> it's so embarrassing to me is like, as a religious person, as an Israeli, like you see these things and they're so transparently bad. And it, it just happens under our nose. Like this just passed. Like there was no, no one cared. It just passed because we just take it as for granted. Like, okay, yeah, corruption will be corrupt. And we're just going to, like, we all know that this is how things are. That we don't even like try to fight it. It's really it's embarrassing. Also, it's embarrassing that like the two contenders are both like first degree family members of, you know, of a current chief rabbi or of a current government minister. Like these are the people who are running the religious institutions. It's really 
Yeah. People have said to me when I've complained about this before, and frankly, I've complained about it regarding the two current chief rabbis, both of whom are sons of former chief rabbis. And people say, well, what if they're the best candidates? My personal take on this is they may or may not be the best candidates. I can't say. But it doesn't matter. The appearance of nepotism or the appearance of making the rabbinate a family concern or a family business is enough to disqualify people even who otherwise would be qualified. Apart from the fact that I have a hard time believing that in the eight to nine million Jewish population of Israel, the only two people who are most qualified are the sons of people who are the former chief rabbis. I have a very yeah. difficult time believing that's true anyway. Yeah, if you want to look at some numbers, which is just to reinforce your point that um that the current rabbis, current candidates for the chief rabbinate, three of them are sons of former chief rabbis, and two of them are first degree relatives of current government ministers. Talking about the um the chief rabbinate council, one third. One third of the chief rabbinate council are either the sons or the sons-in-law of the chief rabbis. That's a lot. Various chief rabbis over time. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, the and half of the dayanim in the uh, Beit Rabbanim Gadol in the high Beitin, the high um, high rabbinic court, are sons of dayanim that sat. You know, basically. They're sitting in the seat their father sat on, half of them. So like you said, it's very hard to believe that like the only people who are best qualified for these positions happen to be sons or sons-in-law of people who are currently in power. It's it's really hard to believe. You know, if we're taking that in combination with all the other things we talked about of these, you know, of corruption or just creating jobs or giving, you know, themselves money or you know, having increasing authority that comes only from the top down, all these things just converge to create a really inexcusable institution. Yeah. I'm almost laughing just because it's so crazy. And these things that we sadly expect from politics, the fact that religion has been wedded to politics, which both of us have for a long time been saying is a terrible aspect of the way things run in the state of Israel and must be changed. Now we see the ultimate Hilul Hashem, and that's the fact that it's a desecration of the divine name is a big part of it. It's also corrupt in its own, even if it weren't a desecration of the divine name. There are all sorts of reasons why this it is harms people. so sad. It's not just embarrassing and looks bad. Like the when it comes down to it, practically, there are people who are suffering because they are part of the system. We are all part of the system that we cannot opt out of, and but we have to suffer the consequences every day, whether it's women who are aguna or converts who get unconverted, or even just people who are in a local council that can't choose their own rabbi. Like it's not just theoretically bad, it's practically bad, and we are the ones paying for it. I remember, and I've quoted this before, I think, a certain comic strip by Doonesbury, Gary Trudeau. It was a a politician and her husband talking to each other, and he was complaining about the quid pro quos. And she said to him, oh, Dick, you're just cynical. And he said, I'm not cynical. I'm constantly amazed. And that's how I sometimes feel about this as well. Constantly amazed at the brazenness of our politicians and, frankly, our politically appointed religious leaders who do the same thing. It's important to keep also to keep that sense of surprise, like to not resign ourselves to like, oh, that's just how it is. They'll just be corrupt. Like we have to remember that like, this is not normal and we have to change it. And we have to, you know, we have to keep that sense of shock alive. So Rachel, let me ask you two final questions before we go. The first one is what can be done about this? In other words, we can sit here and complain all day long but nothing's going to change from this conversation. No one who's listening probably has any power to change it or any desire to change it. So just talking about it, okay, it can get us frustrated, but what practically needs to be done in order to decouple religion and state in Israel to the degree that people want to, or at least for those who don't want to do that, to stop the corruption in the chief rabbinate? Do you have any advice? Yeah, I don't think that the corruption can be stopped in an institute or even like, you know, reformed an institution that is inherently political like that um, structurally is flawed. And there's no way, I think, to reform it. We just have to, you know, either dismantle or privatize it. And that's it. There's no you can't fix something like this. Um, but what people can do is, you know, I don't think it's true to say, you know, the regular listener can't do anything. We can. Um, there's a bunch of things, whether it's civil disobedience, meaning people who decide to marry or even eat, you know, marry outside the rabbinate um, or even eating in the restaurants that have private, you know, kashrut. There's, for example, you know, hashkacha pratit, which uh, was taken over by Sohar, interestingly, um, which basically is um, it's kosher certification outside the auspices of the rabbinate. 
um, you know, patronize places like that. Um, do things outside the rabbinate. Um, when you vote, um, see who, which political party has this on their platform. I think a lot of people, when they come down to voting, don't care about issues of religion and state. You know, there's a very small minority probably of like more liberal feminists that for them, this is very important, but for everyone else, it always comes, you know, 10th after everything else that they care. you know, security is always number one and maybe economic things, maybe, uh, maybe other social issues, but no one really thinks about religion and state when they are voting. Um, but we should, we should make that a priority because that is actually that affects your day-to-day -day life, you know, security or otherwise, like it's such a nebulous and, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen with things, but things like this, like we see it coming, we see it happening, we can change it. Um, the reason why so many things are being passed now is because the people in power can do it because they can, because they have a majority. And, you know, we, if we had anticipated this, which some of us did, um, then this could have been stopped. So I think when, you know, people go to vote, keep that in mind. Um, so yeah, voting, civil disobedience, also talking about it. Cause I think people, there's so much going on right now, politically, there's all these bills that are coming before the Knesset and with the Supreme Court and all these things. There's, I think that's part of the, um, it's part of the strategy. There's like onslaught of like all this kind of legislation and it's very confusing and it's very overwhelming. Um, and stuff like this gets pushed to the side. Like you talked about, you know, the Dairy's brother law, that would just kind of like happened and no one talked about it. It just happened. And, and um, we should talk about it, you know, which is what you're doing right now. You know, people need to be aware um, this is going on and to speak up about it. There's also, they've been putting pressure, you know, on Simcha Rotman to try to dial this back. And he's been trying to, you know, hem and haw his way out of it and saying, oh, I'm going to make some adjustments on whatever, because he he does feel the pressure. Like he does feel somewhat beholden to his base. Um, and that's because people are speaking out about it. So it does make a difference to speak out. It does make a difference to Kvetch, as Jews, we are very good at kvetching. Let's use that to our advantage. Let's do what we're good at. Way. Yes. Um, yeah. So get to social media, talk about it, vote with your feet, vote with your votes. Yeah. Okay. And Rachel, one final question. In your opinion, do you think there should be a chief rabbinate at all in Israel? And if so, what would its role be? You mean as a state institution or as... Yes, as a state institution, as something which is aligned to the state, even perhaps without halakhic power, simply with the power of the pulpit. No, I think that there should not be a state institutionalized religious body at all. Um, it should be completely privatized. And the state can obviously, you know, we can still be a Jewish country, even if we don't have a theocracy, meaning the state has, you know, Saturday as the day of rest, you know, Shabbat is... They arrest Hebrew is the national language. You know, all of the food in the army is kosher. All the food in the Knesset is kosher. Um, the state is funding things like mikvahot and, you know, giving some money to shuls, things like that, like where the state can facilitate religion, but the state should not be coercing religion. Um, I don't think that Israel will stop or will lose its character as a Jewish country if the state isn't forcing that upon us. And it's, it's a little bit... Uh, you know, funny when you hear people say like, but how would Israel, why would anyone want to follow Halacha if the state isn't forcing them to do it? And I hear that most from religious people. And I'm like, wow, you're telling on yourself. <laughs> I feel like, like that's not a very healthy way to look at a religious system that you yourself subscribe to. Like people should be practicing Judaism because they like it, because they find it meaningful, because tradition, whatever reason they have, um, but not because they wish they couldn't and they hate the fact that they do, but the state is forcing them to be like that. That's not that's not what we want the state of Israel turning into or I mean, it already has become like that's not what we want to per perpetuate. So if there is any sort of rabbinate um, as an institution, it has to be private. It cannot be tied to the state. OK, Rachel, just one final point, which I'd like to make, which I'm sure you'll agree with, is that those people who feel this way, that the chief rabbinate is a blight in some ways and really difficult and corrupt, etc. A blight unto the nations. Yes, a blight unto the nations. Um, Very good. Maybe we found a title for this for this episode. <laughs> I think that it comes down to the fact that the people who are criticizing the Rabbanut in such strong terms, among them are surely some anti-religious people who have no interest in religion being shoved down their throats. They are against the Rabbanut because they don't want coercive religion 
and it comes from a place of disliking religion. Then there are people who do this out of a love of Torah and out of a love of Judaism, out of a love of the state of Israel. And I believe that the chief rabbinate, the Rabbinu Rashid, as it's currently constituted, has serious, serious problems and needs to be radically changed. That attitude, for me at least, comes from what I hope is a love of Judaism and a love of Torah and a belief in Torah. And people should just understand that saying, I think the chief rabbinate should be dismantled or severely limited or anything like that is not necessarily coming from a place of, oh, you hate Torah. It could be coming from the opposite. I want people to make sure they understand that it doesn't have to be top down in order to be Torah Judaism. Yeah. Well, Rachel Stolmel, this is very enlightening, and I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for bringing this up as an important conversation that has been missing. This is your captain. We are going to be experiencing some slight turbulence. Please fasten your... Oh, hold on. Just got a video of my cat. Imagine the pilot of an airplane was as confident as you are texting and driving. Seems kind of crazy when you put it like that. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeeHouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.